So here's an interesting one. I saw long-term relationships go to the wayside for the dollar. Cost of the lessee, I think, sometimes is greater. Where a lessee has to go home and do their math, and it, even if they've had a long-term relationship with the landowner or the landlord, landowner's family, they may simply not be able to afford to stay. But more specifically to the individual lease, if that lessee is paying a higher price and is then trying to get as much return grasped down the throat as they can, that too may re- result in them not being invited back. Right. Or at a mi- or a minimum, a dogfight over who's responsible for the degradation of the pasture. But gotcha. there's, there's real cost there. Welcome to the Soil Health Labs podcast. Engaging ranchers, farmers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome to another episode in the Soil Health Labs podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And today we have SDSU's Pete Ballman, who's working out of Watertown, South Dakota. We had Pete on for a previous episode. It was episode number 45. If you'd like more information about Pete or to check that one out, please go back through the library where we have all of our episodes. Buzz, what, uh, what are we talking with Pete about in this one? Barrett, we're talking about structuring grazing leases. Now, before, before you turn your uh, receiver off, just please keep in mind that when you listen to this, this may save you a lot of money and preserve a lot of relationships. I think this is so important for you. And, and why would that be? Well, I think uh, as a land or, landowner or a livestock owner, uh, you might have at some stage felt that you were um, taken advantage of in a grazing agreement. Maybe it was a handshake agreement. Maybe it was a very vague agreement. Uh, but uh, big m- disagreements come in when there are unexpected costs like pushed fences or water or weed problems. So that's why Pete talked about this and, and we go into some detail about it. Well, then I've got a quote right in front of me uh, about input costs. And Pete says, you know, what creates this disgruntled person on either side, it really boils down to unplanned input costs. Would you include uh, fencing and and problems like that? Or what do you think Pete's specifically talking about here? Exactly, the fencing, the water, the weed problems, that kind of stuff. Mm. And so when you've got those unplanned input costs and a little bit of vagueness about that agreement, um, you know, that's when conflict arises. And we may lose money in the short term, but I, I guess what Pete is also coming down to is often there are good relationships that are damaged because of poorly structured graze lease, grazing leases. And I think these things can be avoided. Yeah, well, it reminds me of, of our relationship where I felt like I was going to get paid millions of dollars for this position. And I guess we weren't <laughs> clear about that because that's certainly not reflected in my paycheck. That's right. Well, that's why I have my beach house and my yacht <laughs> that I go to right. every weekend. Just rubbing it in my face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anything else, Buzz, for the listeners before we hop in? No, I think we need to let Pete talk, and we'll have some comments at the end of the podcast. But again, this is really, really worth the listen. And uh, we have a document in the show notes that Pete wrote about. So 
once you've listened to the podcast, the document in the show notes is going to really help you. Yeah, so check out those show notes. Obviously, we'll remind you of that on the other end. But in the meantime, we'll get out of the way and let you guys enjoy this episode with SDSU's Pete Ballman. Also, just a quick note, we did get this interview in with Pete Ballman while he was traveling. So the audio isn't the best, but we feel like there's so much value in this podcast episode. We wanted to give it to you anyway. Pete Bowman, thank you once again for joining us. Appreciate your making the time. And I know you're on the road to Nebraska, so hopefully we can get some good audio out of this. But I think the subject, which has become closer and closer to my heart on contract grazing in general and structuring grazing leases is really important, in my opinion. I think it opens up so many avenues. And perhaps, Pete, I can ask you to hold forth a little bit on just why we think contract grazing is a really good idea in a place like South Dakota. What are the applications? What are the pros? And of course, there are always pitfalls as well. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I think I think just at the very core, contract grazing, at the very foundation of it, what does it really mean? It means that you've got a contract. It means that you've got two parties that are on board with the parameters, you know, of that relationship. Uh, and I think that's core, and it, that's nothing new. And you know, whether that's been verbal contracts way back when, you know, got, going to now, you know, written contracts, and there's all types of derivatives, right, of contracts. But I think where where we've learned over time is goals and mutual goals within those contracts even make those relationships stronger and make the resource management better and make make everything better if, if both parties or if multiple parties are not only bought into the parameters of the contract the business side of it but also the goals and objectives of what the one or both parties are trying to accomplish okay and so even before we start talking about some of those objectives because i've read through your 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 extension bulletin which i really like on structuring grazing leases and so you talk you know you jump into goals but pete give me some examples of where relationships between the landowner and the livestock owner or the lessor and lessee are useful i know we've got some on public land we've got some on private land can you give me a few examples where if the agreement is structured well both parties are going to walk away better off financially and also ecologically for that okay so a good recent example on private lands in south dakota and it's interesting you ask it from that perspective because we're kind of in the same era again. I would dial the clock back to about 2012 through 2014, where contracts on grazing lands were really pushed hard in the sense that crop values, crop prices were, were sky high back then. It's very similar to what they are today, very high. And crop producers were making a lot of money and driving up crop rent 
that then pushed into the grazing arena where we started to see a very strong uptick in grazing rental rates, or at least the desire to capture higher grazing rental rates. If I remember correctly, the cattle market was pretty strong at that time. But what we saw was a general push from landlords or land landowners to ask for more, more in the sense of dollars. Um, and when you have that kind of a relationship, again, that's a, likely a contractual relationship of some sort, but where the parameters come in, and we'll, we'll get into the parameters in a little bit, but where that left the the relationship was that one party being the landowner wanted to maximize return on the land while the other party meaning the grazer if they're going to pay very very top dollar they're going to maximize their return as well and so this way both parties were moving toward maximization of their returns and what was left trampled into the dust was the actual pasture itself and the economics of that actually don't work very well because once you go over that well-managed threshold into simply trying to take as much grass off as you can well it's easy to perceive then what the ramifications of that were were overgrazed pastures fences that were pressured hard water systems that were pressured hard and then i would get calls from these landlords that says you know i don't like my new lessee my old lessee wasn't willing to pay the price my new lessee is just basically taking advantage and raping the entire system, and I'm left with a six or eight or ten thousand dollar chemical bill because I've got a spray for weeds that I didn't have before. You know, that, those are a little, that's a little bit extreme, but that's the examples that would come across my desk time and again where they didn't value the relationship enough, even though it was a long term relationship, and they went for the dollars, and in turn, it probably ended up costing some of them more. In the long okay. run, you know, what I'm hearing in that old paradigm or the conventional paradigm that I think you do very well in explaining in the bulletin is that the focus was on short term income without really a mind towards what would happen next year, the year after next. It, it was simply an exchange of dollars and with not much mindfulness of Number one, the relationship between livestock owner and landowner, and then also what was going to be happening to the land. Is that more or less what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, and, it's, and, I, and I use that example because it was kind of a blip on the radar in a, in a point in time. I believe we'll probably see it again, but I think it also points to the just the general background that that's, that's pretty much true in most cases, most of the time, everywhere. What you just explained that short-term vision for you know somewhat maximum return that was right. an extreme example of that but i mean i think that's basically the foundation of what we're trying to tackle in providing this alternative thought to, as to how how maybe you might structure those leases because you know frankly you know and we can be very honest in this conversation i think we have to be it's somewhat rare that a landowner really understands their ecology it's also somewhat rare that a livestock producer really understands the ecology. It's very rare that they both understand it together in partnership. And that's, and yet, even though that's rare, it's exactly the place that we need to start from if we're going to, you know, revalue these grasslands to the point where we can retain them. So it's not only 
the fact that, you know, if we go for maximizing dollars this year, that becomes a transactional relationship. The outcome might be a long-term degradation of the land, which may lead both landowner and livestock owner in the long term a little bit disgruntled with one another. And what I see you trying to do is take advantage of this notion and say, hey guys, if, if we're working towards common goals, it can benefit both of us. Am I getting that right, more or less? Yeah, that's, a, that's absolutely right. You know, what creates the disgruntled person on either side? You know, if you really boil it down, it's unplanned input costs. I think, you know, in most, in most relationships that fall apart, it's because someone's got to spend money that they didn't plan on spending. Right. Right. And who's, who's accountable for those dollars? And there's a whole bunch of messiness in between, but that's really what it boils down to. Most gotcha. relationships fall apart because of unforeseen expenses. Gotcha. Um, yeah, yeah, on that on one sense. side or another. Can you give me some examples of unforeseen expenses on the landowner's side? I know you did mention fences and I know you did mention weed control. What other expenses might we see that or unforeseen or, or maybe even hidden to the landowner until after the cattle are gone? Well, I think where that really manifests itself more the most is in verbal contracts where there might be a handshake agreement that, you know, this one party is responsible for X, Y, or Z, and then the other party is responsible for these things. Where I see it manifest itself more is in the short term, like, while well, my fences got pushed really hard. It wasn't clear in the contract who's responsible for fences. So maybe the lessee is responsible for fence maintenance, but the landlord is responsible for the actual cost of fence, say, replacement. And at some point, you can only maintain them so much before they need to get replaced. So that would be one of those things. Weed control, I, I know I'm saying chemical control, and I'm not trying to utilize chemicals as a foregone conclusion. But what happens is that's often the default of the landowner to say, you know, now I have a weed problem because we, because my lessee pushed it too hard. Well, then I'll ask, did you, did you set any parameters for your lessee? Well, no, we had an agreement, you know, we talked about it and they didn't really, you know, land on anything. And, or maybe, maybe they said a hundred cows. Well, the landlord's thinking those 100 cows average 1,200 pounds and the lessee's cows actually average 1,600 pounds, you know. All of these things really matter at yes. the end of the season. And so that landlord may get stuck with longer term maybe inputs yeah. because of a short term mismatch in their utilization or their goals, like weed control. You know, weed control is not a one and done thing. A fence, I guess, you know, you could argue that, well, it's expensive, but once I build it, it should last. Weed control, once you invite, once you invite the invasive into your system, you're looking at a very long-term relationship with that weed, you know, that it usually isn't solved in a year. Water sources can be another thing, you know, stream bank degradation. You might not see it in the pocketbook as a, you're certainly going to see it over time. You might not see it, you might not be able to put a number on it immediately. Or you may choose to do nothing about it, and then you've got a degradation of your of your asset, which is your water or your pasture. You know these these things can tend to be somewhat subtle until you until you see them, you know, again for the first time. What about for the livestock owner? What kind of unintended or unforeseen 
costs might come up for the livestock owner or the so with the landowner is the yeah landowner and the livestock owner you would call the lessee is that correct the lessee right so here's an interesting one during that era i saw long-term relationships go to the wayside for the for the dollar and I'll, I'll say it on both i'll say it from both angles but the cost of the lessee i think sometimes is greater where a lessee has to go home and do their math and if, even if they've had a long-term relationship with the landowner or the landlord landowner's family they may simply not be able to afford to stay so that's an unforeseen consequence or an unforeseen cost in their operation it, from that sense, because they may have to go find new pasture. But more specifically to the individual lease, if that lessee is paying a higher price and is then trying to get as much return, you know, grass down the throat as they can, that too may re result in them not being invited back. Right. right. Or at a or a minimum, it might result in a very in a dogfight over who's responsible for the degradation of the pasture. And was it written down? And if it wasn't written down, well, the lessee may or may not be in the, in the right in the argument, but guess what? They don't hold any authority. They usually are only contracted for one year. And if a discrepancy arises, even if the landlord may be wrong, the landlord's got the power. The lessee may not be retained in that lease and so there's a real cost there there's a real cost of uh, an opportunity cost that might go you might say that goes away and then they may be forced into decisions of their business whether that's less pasture less cattle you know who knows but gotcha. there's, there's real cost there you also distinguish between a few different types of landowners like non-operating landowners and then involved landowners. I, I can think of a few examples at least of landowners that may be involved that lease, you know, that lease their land out, but then play an active role in managing of the livestock as well. I wonder if you could just talk to us about maybe a spectrum of someone who, you know, sure. may live in the city or, you know, live in a different state and leave the management up to the producer versus the other way around. Yeah, so so those not those absentee or not operating landowners are becoming more prevalent in the agricultural community. They've always they've always been there, but they're becoming more and more prevalent as families, you know, go through generational transfers and things like that. And so there's a lot of degrees of of gray in here, but they may not recognize a really good lessee when they have one. But conversely, they may not recognize a really bad lessee when they have one either, right? Gotcha, gotcha. Or, yeah, or, or they approach their business with a, a degree of skepticism and the lessee is, you know, coming from, at it from a place of, well, just trust me, I've done it this way forever. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but that non-operating landowner may themselves have some idea of what they want to achieve as far as goals on their land. And that can be a real rub because the lessee may be very, very well-intentioned. They almost sometimes can get to the point where they see the land that they lease as their own. Now, again, there's, gray, there's shades of gray here. When you're talking in the private industry, when you're talking public land leases, then that grayness gets a little even fuzzier because in some ways, in some places, those landowners 
may even pay the, or, I'm sorry, those lessees say they're renting from the state of South Dakota, for instance, in some instances, they may actually be paying the property taxes on that lease. So the degree of ownership isn't always really black and white as far as, far as uh, how it's perceived for the stewarding of that land. And I, I probably should leave it at that or else we're going to kind of go off these tangents of degrees. But So that's, that's one type of landowner. The other type of landowner is the one that's present and hands off. They may have a really good understanding of their ranch or of the land that they're leasing. They're, they can be a very valuable asset to the lessee as far as knowledge and resources, but they may be very hands-off unless or until they don't like what they see, and then it can be a surprise. And then the third type, I would say, is that landowner that's either absent or present, but is very hands-on, very much has a goal in mind for what they want to see on their property and very much expects their lessee to, if not be a part of the goal setting process, at least deliver on those goals that they've got in mind. And again, if, if they fall short, there can be some strife and some angst with that. So Now, Pete, would cropland landowners also fall into one of those categories? Oh, I think so. You know, absolutely, philosophically, yes. The thing that I've never tackled or developed on the cropland side to the degree that I've, you know, tried to capture this on the livestock side is the structural pricing on the crop ground, taking all these things into account. But absolutely, from a philosophical standpoint, yes, I think you've got the same type of landowners. You know, they're either hands-off or hands-on. They've got goals for their crop ground. They want to see their soils improve, or maybe they maybe they don't care. Maybe if they're getting top dollar, they choose not to care. I, I think the scenarios play out exactly the same way. Is you know is the lessee serving to enhance the long-term viability, productivity, ecology of the thing that they're leasing, whether it's a crop field or a grassland? And conversely, does the landlord desire to have a relationship with the lessee that, that moves toward those types of goals? You know, I was wondering if we could start with the structuring of the grazing leases. You emphasize the setting of overall goals, and I'm assuming this is mainly on the landowner's side. Is that correct? Perhaps you can tell me a little bit more of what does a landowner want to be looking for? And when they're talking about goals for the land, is this something that is common? Or is this something we want to start educating landowners on? Have a series of goals in mind as you manage your land, whether for cropland or grazing land. So you, the first question was, does it usually stem from the landowner? And I would say, yes, ideally it would and then also very quickly move into a relationship with the lessee. But starting from the landowner, you know, what what people have a hard time, I think, realizing, I'm dealing with this, I had a good example of this with my own family here recently, is they, I think intuitively people do understand what looks and feels correct and good. Although they may not be able to label it, they may not be able to to really identify it, but you don't have to be an ecological expert to walk at a, in a, across a well-managed 
pasture with a great degree of diversity of life, not only just the, the, the vegetation and the flowers and the grasses, but the insects and the birds and those things. And compare that to walking across one that has been mismanaged, overgrazed, you know, whatever label you want to, and, and, and feeling how dead it is. And so I think people inherently and innately have that ability. I don't think it matters if you grew up in the inner city or if you grew up as a prairie, as a prairie you know, advocate. I think that inherently people can feel this. Now, can you put words to it? Not always. And gotcha. so what the landowners, I think, often come to me, I, I'm, I seem to be kind of the gateway for a lot of people. And they, they, they express these frustrations in terms of things that they understand maybe. That's too short. The fence looks bad. You know, there's the water's dirty. You know, and and of course we know in the business that those things actually do occur even within well-managed systems, and usually they occur only for a blip in time. And sometimes they're intentional. Sometimes a really good grazing application is a very short result, and then a long recovery time or something like that. So you know, I help them try to break that down. But what it comes down to is their goal. Inherently, their goal is to have a well-functioning system, and you have to kind of help them walk through that. Now, more advanced landowners, more experienced, have an easier time getting to those goals, and maybe they've actually had generational family goals that reflect that. But the goals are usually, you know, can be broken down as to, you know, what do you want the land to look like? What are your financial goals? What are your input cost goals for yourself? What do you not want to spend money on anymore? What other opportunities do you want that land to serve you or your family than simply just a grazing lease to somebody else? You know, are there recreational goals? Are there aesthetic goals? All of these things. Are there are there teaching or outreach goals? You know, they, that that's not a, a complete list, but that gives you right. an idea of what we're talking about. Yeah, I've actually got the the document open at page three in front of me. So really what you're talking about initially, as a landowner, you want to assess the current state of your property and then assess that desired future condition. So, you know, what do I want that to look like? And then there are a whole lot of other things. I like the the, the fifth one, you know, do my goals align with that of my current lessee? So it, it sort of takes you back to, okay, do I really, is this going to work if I work with my lessee? And I, again, I think mm. you're really talking about that mutual agreement between the two where both parties want to walk away, making sure that the other one is content with that deal. Well, yeah, and this is going to sound a little harsh. It's not meant to sound harsh, but if you're not willing to help be a solution to your own problems, no one else can help you. So if you've lived with a lessee that you've got a burning disdain for, but yet you've lived with that lessee because social pressure, family pressure, maybe tradition, whatever, first of all, you're doing yourself a disservice by not walking through the process of, you know, why do I have disdain for this person? But then secondly, is fairness. Have I ever been honest with that person? 
as to what I expect them to do or, or not to do on my on my property with my asset. You know, if you were if we were talking about a financial port portfolio, would you continue to stay with someone that mismanaged your money? I would say no, you probably wouldn't. But yeah, we seem to accept that a little bit more when it's somebody mismanaging other assets like our land. Now, in fairness, and that's why I really call for in this document a process. Engage them first. Be, try try to preserve that relationship. Try to engage that that lessee as a partner. And it it's not easy, and it can be messy. But time does tell the truth. If this is, if the goals are are well stated, and that lessee immediately just balks at the entire idea and says, "Don't don't bother me with your goals." I'll do what I do. I've been doing it forever. I got this. Don't worry about it. You probably have the wrong person. Gotcha. Um, you probably truly have the wrong person. If they say, hey, tell me more, or wow, I never knew that. There is a plethora of lessees out there that know nothing truly about the grassland ecology that they're operating their business on, as well as landowners. Now, that sounds harsh. There's also what I would say a great, great many that do have various levels of understanding. Some of them would blow me out of the water. I, I mean, I have ranchers that I learn from every day, you know, so it, it's a scale. But, what, but the ones that I learn most from are the ones that have done this. And, and I, I want to be clear about this. This is a, none of what I'm sharing here is actually some great epiphany. This is learned. This is learned from people that have been successful doing it. And I think that's the biggest take home. All of this stuff is learned. Very, very little of it is just like you wake up one day and just like intuitively you understand these things. It's really learned. And so, and so this entire document, you know, what was my resource? It wasn't going back into the annals of like range management. I called the most successful producers that I knew were doing things differently. And I asked them to share some of their trade secrets with how to structure a lease that really works well. And there wasn't a lot of surprises there, but there was some tidbits. And one of these was it, you know, having the courage to take control of your own business. Having the courage to say, you know what, I've got the wrong business partner. I've got to move on. One thing that I might not have highlighted enough yet that I need to be fair about is I've talked. I've talked on this a large part from the lessee's or the, the the landowner's perspective. But what pains me is when a lessee takes it upon themselves to have very very good goals and objectives for to steward the land that they're leasing, and then they get thrown to the side because someone else is willing to pay more. That's short sightedness on the terms of the landowner, and, and the way that breaks down might be. Just the flip side of all this is, did the lessee, in fact, share with their landlord the, their deep commitment to goals and objectives to make the land that they were leasing healthier? And sometimes they, they didn't convey that well, or maybe they didn't have an opportunity to, you know. There's a lot of fuzziness in all this, you know. Well, I think that might also go back to the fact that sometimes the landowner might not understand her or his own goals and and what they want out of that land except you know it's 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 a piece of land that's going to make money rather than looking right. at that a little bit long term 
Yeah, great examples of this though, if you're, if you're renting land from a, someone that's passionate about their hunting, whether that be upland birds or deer or waterfowl, turkeys, whatever. As a lessee, my first bit of advice is embrace that. Come to that person with a, with a strategy that's going to enhance their own enjoyment on their own land. Take the initiative, you know. Come to them and say, hey, you know, I don't want to graze that at this time of year because I think that would be great pheasant hunting. I know you love to pheasant hunt on your own land or, you know, some derivative of that. You know, we want to keep the livestock away from the, the slough edges in late fall because we don't want to take away from your, you know, your duck hunting. Yeah. Those kinds of recognitions, those types of, of forward thinking statements, man, they can, they can really cement the relationship, you know, for the long term. Pete, you give some examples of old or conventional leases, possibly that used to work on the AUM system or possibly per acre. Maybe we should start at as a basis there. Perhaps just explain to me some of the reasons why we may not want to just rent something per acre. First step, first step is just getting something on paper. That That's just kind of your basic, you know, we, the, the 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 era of verbal leases, I think, should probably come to an end because it's 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 a little too messy. Okay, so what do we put on paper? Well, the idea that you're renting the acre, I believe, has really led us down the road of the things that we've talked about here, where there's mis miscommunication or conflicting goals. You're not really renting an acre as much as you are purchasing a certain amount of grass that's grown on that acre but even more specifically you're purchasing the amount of grass that is consumed by your livestock or you're selling the amount of grass that's consumed by someone else's livestock you know from both from both perspectives and when we think about it from that from that angle we're talking about a commodity a measurable thing you know certainly acres are measurable but what we're, but you know, more, I think more directly, what are we selling? We're selling grass, you know, we're selling sunlight and water. We're selling really the land's ability to grow that grass. And I guess, you know, when I, again, reaching toward those folks that have found success in this arena, you know, there's technical terms like there's the animal unit or there's the animal unit months, and that's, that's used very frequently in government contractual relationships. But it's kind of hard for people to understand. For, for whatever reason, some of these more technical derivatives of what I'm saying is selling grass sometimes can get very complex and people don't understand it. It's, and so uh, the, what's the language that all everyone can understand is this idea of, of a per head, per day type of contract. And just very briefly, what it means is that, Buzz, if I'm running my cattle on your land you and i have come to a predetermined agreement with what i'm going to pay you per day for each individual animal that's out there now why does that matter or why does that even make sense when we're renting on a per acre basis you're going to charge me as much as you can per acre and i'm going to say well geez you know buzz is charging me a hundred dollars an acre by golly, I'm going to get $100 worth of grazing off of that acre no matter what. So how do I do that, Buzz? I probably put in more cattle than 
then that system actually will hold because I want to harvest all those blades of grass. And so I'm looking at maximizing the harvest, but I'm not looking at my individual animal performance, which is where I actually make my money probably more than anything is that individual gain on those animals that I'm, that I'm paying you to have out there. But because you're charging me by the acre, I'm going to put as many things on those acres as I can. When we flip it and do it the other way, where it really comes into play is, let's say, in a, in a, maybe we're in a drought. Now, Buzz gets paid on the number of animals that are out there. I get paid, I, I make my money on the gain on those animals. So in a drought situation, you're going to want, you're going to want me to retain those animals on your pasture because you get paid more. But I'm going to be looking at things much more differently. I'm going to be looking at the food resource for my animals and I'm going to say, you know, Buzz, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to take 15 or 20 head off of that pasture because I'm not getting the return on my investment anymore. Is because we're in a drought or some some other situation. And therefore, by default, I'm protecting the resource. I'm more in control with my animals on your property. Now, you also have a say in this, but that's where our predetermined relationship comes in. And when we're working through goals and objectives, we, we do that mutually and we say, okay, how many? How many of these 1,200 pound cows will my system handle? What do you feel good about? How much return are we looking at? And it creates a conversation that leads you toward mutual goals in a, in a, in a healthier way. Here's the sweet spot of the take home message of all of this. I would argue that what I just proposed as the basis for the contractual relationship is applicable to any management methodology that the two parties want to apply in the relationship, whether that's rotation, whether that's early intensive heavy stocking and then destocking, whether that's coming on late, whether that's a destocking plan over time. It always makes sense because you have the ability to set the rate, set the number, and create the timeline. There's no gray area in what I owe you in this system. You know, I didn't rent your thousand acre pasture and then have you kick me off in August because there's no grass left. And then we've got to figure out who owes who what, right? Well, you know, I didn't, you know, did I get 50% of my contract value? Did I get 70% of my contract value? You know, there's there's that strife that there's a lot of opportunity for argument there, right? Right, um, right. I'm I might I might say, well, geez, Buzz, you know, I rented that for six months, and I only got three months of grazing off of it. So now, you you know, I only owe you fifty percent of the contract. Well, Buzz, you might say, well, wait a second, Pete. Yeah, you were out there for only three months. But we both know that 75% of our grass growth happened in the first two months. So you owe me 75% of that contract. And who's right, you know? I, I've just realized then, so some of these old leases, you're actually 
just paying a lump sum based on the acreage over a pre and grazing period, whether that's achieved or not. So it doesn't account for the amount of time that the animals have been occupied that occupying that grazing space. Very important point, Buzz. I'm glad you brought that up. So there's different, there's degrees of, of the con- contractual conversation. But let me just say, there are leases out there where it's a lump sum and the acres and they're renting the acres and the time is eh, fuzzy, you know, the, the season, whatever that means. Well, some years that mean, might mean that the lessee doesn't take those animals out till August or October 15th. Or maybe they get busy and they don't take them out till November fifteenth. You know that's that's quite a discrepancy. Of and and of, and did they account for the you know does the lease account for the number of animals? Oftentimes no, okay. or the size of those animals. You know, so we're getting into this precision in in the business. Why why would we leave all these things to guesswork and chance when we actually have the it's it's not hard. It's not hard to do it the the the, the easier the, the better way. Maybe we call it the easier way. We can measure these things, so let's account for them. You know, and the other the other part of this I should really mention in South Dakota and other places that oftentimes the pasture itself isn't assessed. I might be renting a hundred acre pasture from you that my dad rented from your grandpa for the last twenty years, and we never actually measured it. And now we come to find that, well, geez, you know, 30 or 40 acres of that pasture are under open water. Am I really renting 100 acres or am I renting 60? Gotcha. Yeah. All of this is called for in this in this guidance document is to, you know, it, it sounds so common sense, but it hasn't been applied. So we felt it was really important to walk people through this process of assessing everything and coming to a fair a fair place. Before we hop back into this episode, we wanted to take a moment to remind our listeners that the USDA will be expanding conservation program opportunities through EQIP and CSP for climate smart practices. These practices include a lot. I'll go ahead and take a deep breath before I roll them out. They are conservation crop rotation, residue and tillage management, reducing tillage or using no-till, cover crops, nutrient management, grass seeding practices like field borders, filter strips, grassed waterways, pasture and range improvements, land plantings, and range seedings, as I'm sure there will be a few other practices that will fall under this category as well. So none of these are new and all of them have a proven track record in South Dakota. Get in touch with your local NRCS to see how using these climate smart practices could benefit your operation in 2023 and beyond. And now back to the episode. So maybe I should just walk our listeners through some of those steps because this is again explicit in the document and uh, you know it took me about half an hour to read through this and and make a lot of sense but steps to developing a strong lease and landowner lessee relationship you just mentioned that the first thing you've got to determine the current forage production of the pasture and then second part which seems to be quite critical how much 
of that forage will be made available for livestock consumption. And then here, the other thing is matching the livestock and timing of grazing. So that that really makes makes a lot of sense. And then that fourth step would be to make those informed decisions. As you say, this information is not hidden from the land or the li livestock owner and being able to sharp, sharpen your pencils and have a few cups of coffee and break a little bit of bread and talk about this, you know, especially at this time would be really useful to me. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, and I, I try to write this from both sides of the equation because, uh, you know, the landowners should sharpen their pencils and so should the lessees. And I, you know, we, we know that both can be very satisfied. And, and I think that when you get to the point of being satisfied, it doesn't mean that prices can't go up or adjustments can't get made, you know, those types of things, but profitability and the ability to look past the short-term upticks that might put pressure on the relationship, you know, whether that's an, an uptick in land values. But the other thing is, is that a profitable lessee that knows the value of that of that landlord and their relationship, they're also willing to pay, those people are also then willing to pay a little more. But conversely, a landowner or a landlord that knows the value of that lessee and the unmeasurable things that that person may or may not do for them, they're also willing to maybe take a little less. You know, I tell landlords this, I'm like, you know, especially if they come and, and and complain that now they've got this weed control bill. <laughs> I said, well, you know, how many how many years is it going to take you to pay for that for the five dollars that you squeezed out your last lessee that you would have never had that problem? You know, was was your five dollars or ten dollars an acre really worth it? And now the relationship's gone. And now why would that lessee want to return? Because someone else now, now they've got to clean up someone else's mess that, you know, might have abused that pasture, you know? So it's all pretty common sense, but we just tried to, to make it logical, I guess, you know, to some, to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about other services, which the landowner and then the lessee might be providing sure. during that grazing period. So that's, I'm glad you asked that. So there's a, there's a litany of services, but most of them are pretty common sense. And I'll start with myself as an example. So I rent a pasture where on a per head, per day basis, and my landlord provides zero services, meaning day-to-day -day services. So I'm an, I as a lessee am responsible for my own rotation. I'm responsible for up of the water system. There is real water on the site that is provided, but, but I have to pay for that. You know, that's, that's part of, the, of the, the agreement. But by and large, I do everything, or I do, I do everything with the cattle. 100% of my responsibility. That landlord provides nothing. Now, conversely, there's the, the, the other extreme would be you, what you might call your contract grazer who provides all the services so that you basically drop your cattle off and you don't have to look at them again until the end of the grazing season. 
So that landlord will provide all of the rotation labor if they're rotating, as well as the infrastructure that goes along with that, fence and water systems, etc. They may provide even possibly medical treatments, although that's fairly rare. That is where I see one thing that kind of drops off, where a full-service contractor might say, you know, I'm, I might be the I might be the landlord, Buzz, and you might be dropping your cattle, and I'll say, Buzz, I'll keep you informed if I see anything out of ordinary with your with your herd health, but I'm not going to take on the responsibility of doctoring your cattle, you know, but I will help you, you know, as much as I can. So, like, say you're in Missouri and I'm in South Dakota, and you bring me all your cattle. Well, you're not physically probably going to be here, but I'll be like, hey, Buzz, you know, we've got some hoof rot or we've got some pink eye or something going around. What do you want to do? And you may say, well, I'd like to treat that on a herd basis. Well, I might help you line that up, but I'm probably not going to be the decision maker for you. It's going to be your choice, your decision, your cattle, right? Yep. That's yep. pretty common. Yeah, that um, makes. But in general, salt, mineral, you know, all of the other things that go around, along with the animal husbandry, I'm going to do all of that for you. And therefore, I'm going to charge you more than the first scenario where where I provided nothing for you, you know. Right. And right. and the reason that that really starts to make sense, well, it can make sense in a lot of a lot of scenarios, but miles are expensive, and 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 hours are expensive, and. And those that, that find a good trust relationship that you can bring me your cattle and know that I'm going to provide those services and I'm going to look at them and treat them like my own, you know, you're paying me that daily rate on each one of those individuals. But you know what? At the end of the season or even at any time, you can come and take a look. And if you're not happy, guess what? You're in control. You don't have to come back to me. It really balances everything out really well. Both parties are share in a power share, I think, you know. Well, I, I was going to add here, I think the listeners by now have become, it's become quite obvious that we're not talking about numbers of prices. And that's the next logical question. Everybody's like, well, what do you charge? What do you charge? Well, I think it would be, it's an overstep for me to to suggest what the values are. Those values are between the two parties. But I would say that some comfortable starting points for the conversation are, well, what does your per acre per year lease look like? Is it is it a comfortable number? Well, you know, for both parties, you know, who's who's spending money on what, and and would you would you be willing to accept less if you didn't have to spend money on that, this, that, or the other thing? So. I, I'm I'm being intentionally vague here because both parties really have to look at inputs and ex expectations and what it's worth to them and come to that agreement themselves. You did talk later on in the document how easy it is really to measure forage and then how easy it is also for the lessee to measure in and out weights, you know, even if it's just a gross weight of you know, how much they brought in versus gross wage of how much they took out without necessarily having to measure each individual animal. Are there relationships yeah. where, you know, both parties are motivated to, you know, get good production? And I would think that if I'm charging you or sharing the profit in how much weight your animals are putting on, are there leases that are structured in that way? 
there's there's getting to be more, and they and I, I would argue they certainly should be, you know. And this is taking page out of the cropping world as well. So I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak from the landlord's perspective on this first. The landlord is, by all accounts, fully exposed, meaning they can't hide what they're getting paid because both parties know it. And they can't hide how much grass they're growing, right? Like <laughs> yes. it's, it's out there for them, for, for the world to see. There's no, there's no hidden values. So I would argue, and, and others would say the same, well, maybe that lessee has to meet that landlord at halfway so that there is no perception of dishonesty or only knowing half-truths. The, the lessee should be proud to share with their landlord their their gains, their performance numbers, even if it might cost them a little bit. Guess what? It's going to cost you because you're doing so well. Profitability can be shared. Both parties can be rewarded. One has to understand, I think, that the landlord, uh, if they're suspicious that you're not being honest, that can that can result in a in a in a loss of contract. So share it with them you know and when you weigh and and weigh those animals coming on get those numbers weigh those animals coming on and, and share all the numbers everything's black and white at that point you know there's no hidden numbers how much do those cows weigh when were those calves born what can we expect those calves to be consuming if they've been if they hit their six months if they hit six months old while they're on pasture you know they're gonna be eating a lot of grass Let's account for that. Let's let's measure that. Let's let's not let's not be cloak and dagger about it. Let's be honest about how you know everything we can about these herds, and therefore these landlords are going to be just as honest with with the lessee in the, in return. You know, and I and I, and I, I I say this because when you see these relationships develop like this, it's very positive. Yeah, the partners they become yeah. partners. Yeah. Well, Pete, I think we have, we've covered so much. You've been so much help to us and thank you so much for chatting with us. Get on your way and safe travels, my friend. All right. Thanks, Buzz. Appreciate All right. it. All right. then. Bye-bye. Okay, well, thank you guys for checking out this episode. If you are planning to enter into any kind of leasing agreement, please check out the show notes of this episode where we have some of Pete's publications, which will be a much more deeper dive into the topics that we discussed in this episode. Yeah, the publication specifically would be structuring grazing leases, and we have a direct link to that. But please, 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 uh, I, quite, I cannot em emphasize enough how much a small investment might really save money, save the, um, the land as well. But the big thing is preserving relationships. Uh, as I get older, <laughs> a lot of the suffering I encounter is mm. because of broken relationships, yeah. that, and, and that's not necessary. So you have a great tool over here. I'd also remind you to uh, remember that um, the SD Grazing Exchange may provide landowner and livestock owner with great opportunities for partnerships. I would imagine also just a lot of stress in general that will come from 
any kind of communication breakdown or relationship issues, but the amount of stress that's added to a person's life without having a clear grazing lease agreement here, uh, I can't imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and as Pete says, I I, I don't want to beat a a horse to death, but, you know, if somebody mismanages your money, you're going to try and fix that problem, right? So why if somebody mismanages your land or possibly the other way around, why why would you kind of let sleeping dogs lie? So that's that's it. I think part of this is Pete's emphasis uh, when we have a well-structured grazing lease where both parties understand each other's goals, this becomes a partnership rather than just a kind of a hands uh, or a an arm's length um, a transaction. Yeah, so definitely check out uh, the publication in the show notes. We'll go ahead and preview our next podcast episode with uh, the infamous Gabe Brown. <laughs> The infamous yes. <laughs> Gabe Brown, our neighbor to the north of us, uh, he he is one of the key people that got me started on my soil health journey. Uh, so that was exciting, and it was a really pri- really great privilege for me to um, to get in and and visit with Gabe. Uh, it was both Joe and myself. Yeah, very prominent name. I think of all the. Uh agricultural leaders and talking heads out there when I'm on social media promoting stuff for what we have going on I feel like most the most popular quotes come from Gabe Brown in my experience so we'll bring that episode to you guys next and in the meantime don't forget to remember the R's rotate rest recover and we tried to do the five principles the five Um, principles (laughs) well what are they? Well, that's a good question. Keep the Mi- soil covered. Keep the soil covered. Minimal disturbance. Right. Live root in the soil. Yep. Diversity. 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 Right. And livestock integration. Livestock integration. And there's actually a sixth principle that some people talk about is context. Ooh, juicy. So, yeah. Working with rather than against Mother Nature. Yeah. Well, we're learning a little bit about context when we uh, had that episode with Justin Thompson and Candace Olson Mazira. Yeah. Uh, about the benefits of some disturbance. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay, well, we'll hop out of the way, check out the show notes, join us for our next episode with Gabe Brown. I'm Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And keep it resilient.